Amen. We're in Acts chapter 12. We've been in the series. We're looking at different prayers that occur and happen in the book of Acts. Uh, and in the book of Acts, and I can't wait to get into it in the new year, the activity up until chapter 12 has been mostly centered around Jerusalem. But in the sections leading up to chapter 12, what we see is that there's more activity happening among the Gentile people. The gospel really starts to expand after a man named Stephen is killed. He's martyred. He's a follower of Jesus. He's stoned to death. And as a result of his death, the believers start to flee from Jerusalem. They go north, away from Judea, further into Syria, into Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey, and as they scatter and as they leave, they share the gospel. And they don't just share it with Jews. Acts 11 is actually pretty explicit and clear that they happen to share it with Gentiles too. This is a big thing, and a lot of people come to know Jesus as a result of these persecuted Christians fleeing Jerusalem. Praise God, the church is expanding. This is what we start to see here now in this section of Acts. And the church in Jerusalem finds out, and they send a man named Barnabas. They send him to go see what's going on in Antioch. Go, can you go check out what's going on? We're hearing reports of Gentiles hearing the gospel and hearing about Jesus. Can you go check it out? And Barnabas goes, check it out. And what happens? He goes to Tarsus and finds Paul. And he says, Paul, you got to come with me to Antioch. We got to plant this church because there's a lot of new believers who need teaching and they need preaching. And so they go together to this church plant and they teach and they preach for a year. Remarkable stuff is happening in Antioch. This is the lead up to chapter 12. And now Luke, Luke shifts the scene. If you see in a movie, you're seeing one thing and then it goes, it cuts to a whole nother scene. That's what happens in chapter 12. It's going to cut to what is happening concurrently in Jerusalem. So while this is happening and the gospel is experiencing ex extreme expansion, we're going to flip to Jerusalem and that's the setting for chapter 12. There's a big contrast between what's going on there and then what's going on in chapter 12. Luke tells us around this time there's trouble brewing in Jerusalem. Right at the beginning of chapter 12, Herod is laying violent hands on Christians on people in the church the church is a part of the Jewish community and it's so far up until now it's been blending in with the rest of the Jewish community but it's harder now as this group of Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah as they become more numerous they're upsetting the other Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and what you see in chapter 12 there especially if you dip down to uh, verse 11, you start seeing that God has rescued him from Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. There starts to be this distinction between the church and the Jews. We no longer start looking at the church as a sect or as a part of the Jewish community. They now, we start calling them the church and Christians. 
In chapter 11, just before this section, the church is called Christians, or the disciples of Jesus are called Christians for the very first time in Antioch. Herod is going to try to solve this problem of the large uh, group of Jews getting upset at the church. He's going to try and solve this problem because it's a really good political move for him. Getting rid of church leaders is going to curry favor with the larger Jewish population. And these are the people that he's been appointed to govern over. This Herod is not the same Herod that we read about early in the Gospels and we read about during Christmas time. That is Herod the Great. He, uh, he's the one who's tricked by the wise men. He's the one who kills all the babies before the age of two. That is Herod the Great. That is this Herod's grandfather. Lots of Herods in the Bible. Okay, we got Herod the Great is this Herod's grandfather. This is also not Herod Antipas. There's another Herod. That's this Herod's uncle. Herod Antipas is the one who slices John the Baptist's head off. Herod Antipas is the one that Jesus goes to before going to the cross. That's this guy's uncle. Runs in the family. This Herod is Herod Agrippa, and his father is murdered by his grandfather. Herod the Great, also Herod. (laughs) As a baby, Herod Agrippa is sent to Rome because they fear for his life. So he's raised in Rome, he's raised as a Roman, and he grows up with other kids who are Romans who eventually become emperors. Two of his childhood friends become Caesars. His childhood friend Gaius becomes Caesar. We know him as Caligula. And his childhood friend Claudius becomes Claudius Caesar. This guy's well connected. When um, Gaius becomes Caesar, he gives this Herod control over the territory of Judea. So he becomes king of Judea. He gives his friend uh, this territory. And then Gaius dies. Claudius takes over. And again, they're friends. So Claudius gives him even more territory. And giving this territory over to Herod is strategic for Rome because they want peace in this area. If you remember in Daniel, when we were in the book of Daniel, we read a lot about the king of the north and the king of the south and how they were at war with each other. Daniel had uh, uh, prophesied that this would happen. So this area for for the last couple hundred years, has been in conflict. They have been at war. The the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, they've been at war with each other. And so um, Rome wants peace in this area. And the Caesars believe that if they put a Jewish king governing this area, that there's going to be peace. And because Herod's mother... Herod's grandmother was Jewish, he can legitimately say that he's Jewish. And so he's going to get along with this large group of Jews who he has to govern. So Herod, this Herod, is a politician first. He's not a Jew by conviction, he's a Jew by convenience. 
This is the most expedient way for him to gain power and authority and fame. Josephus, he's a Jewish historian of the first century, says that Herod will do anything to ingratiate himself with the Jews. Anything. So when he's in Rome, he does as the Romans do. And when he's with the Jews in Jerusalem, he does as they do. And he pretends to be a very devout Jew. He reads the law. He goes to temple. There's a lot of politics going on. And once again, the church is caught in the middle. When Herod hears that there's a small group of Jews who are upsetting the rest of the Jews, he's going to try and solve this for them. And he's going to use this to bolster his profile with the Jews. It's an easy win for him. One of his first moves is to kill James. That's why he kills James. And he sees that it works. The Jewish people are happy that this happened. And so what does he do? He's going to do it again. And he's going to go after the church leaders, James. And now he's going to go for Peter. Herod is looking for ways to be more liked in Jerusalem. And so that his friends in Rome will like him more. Okay? Herod is a weak man who seeks the approval of people, he seeks the approval of men, instead of seeking the approval of the God that he professes to follow and love. This is what happens in our world today with organizational leaders, with politicians, and even with pastors. Yes, even pastors. They will mold their convictions to appeal to as many people as possible to get their approval. Even the institutions that we think are safe, they're safe from trends in public opinion, they will bend to the will of man. They will bend to seek the approval of people. Because they seek approval from people. They seek praise from people. They seek praise from creatures and not from the creator. They'd rather loosen the truth, loosen their convictions to avoid criticism and blowback. And yes, pastors too, this happens in churches. Pastors will water down the gospel so that people come and are not, they don't want to offend people. So they will water down the gospel. They'll refuse to talk about sin or avoid talking about sin. They'll compromise the truth to make God more appealing. This is what happens when we replace the satisfying love of God for the temporary praise of man. This is what we're seeing Herod do to the church in Jerusalem. And it's a reminder for us here living in the West in the 21st century that leaders... And culture might be accepting of <clears throat> the Christian message today. They might tolerate it today, but tides shift. We may be free to believe what we believe today, but it may not be the case forever. The institutions, the government, uh, the schools, they protect the gospel today, but they may not tomorrow. We can't rely on them. They are not for the gospel. They are for themselves. They cannot be our safety. Because they will eventually bend to the will of the people. And if there are enough people who are upset by the message, they will do like Herod does. And they will try to solve the problem. So Herod lays violent hands on the church. He kills James because it makes people happy. And remember that Satan is always, always working towards the destruction of God's church. 
the destruction of God's plan and God's people. He always has. The church has always been the target of satanic rage. The church is a threat to Satan. So our safety cannot be in this world. Our safety is God. Our refuge is God, not government or politics. Politicians or leaders or entrepreneurs or technology, our hope and our trust is that God is in control. Our shelter and our refuge is God. And specifically, we trust that God is working everything for our good and for his glory. And you might be thinking, well, what protection was offered to James? How did God keep James safe? The hope that we have is not that we will never fall to the sword or be killed or persecuted. The hope that we have is that if we fall on the sword, if we are killed, if we are persecuted, it happened because God permitted it and it is working for our good and for his glory. That is our safety and our comfort and our refuge. It's not because God blinked and fell asleep. But because that is how he is working his plan of salvation in this broken and in this sinful world. If you were to ask James today if he is safe, he would say yes. If you were to ask James right now if God was faithful to him, I bet you James would say yes. James is covered by the blood of Jesus, safe from the wrath of God, and now enjoying hope in Christ in glory. James is enjoying the magnificent things that are promised to you and I. Jesus says not to fear those who kill the body, but to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The followers of Jesus, if you decide to follow Jesus, you need to know that the world is hostile to us. It hated Jesus, it's going to hate us. The primary concern for the Christian is to be with God for eternity. Our safety, our safety net is that God is always working for the good of those who love him and for his glory. God doesn't lose ever, nor do we. Even though God is in total control, there's no reason to think that God will always deliver his people from dangers in this life. James is killed, and a few chapters earlier, so is Stephen. And if you study church history, you know that every apostle dies martyred, except for one. And that one was boiled in oil, and eventually exiled to the island of Patmos, and he ends up writing the book of Revelation. So even then, God is working his purpose. Hebrews tells us that some, by faith, in chapter 11, in verse 37, it says that some are... Uh, that some by faith conquer kingdoms, they enforce justice, they stop the mouths of lions and they escape the sword. But it also says this in the same section, that some suffer mocking, that some suffer flogging and chains and imprisonment. Some are stoned and sawn in two and killed with the sword. The church is earnestly praying at this point. You read that in verse 5. But in God's providence, he permits James' death. And the same God is going to be the one who orchestrates Peter's release. 
God works in different ways with different people. Maturity as believers means that we can accept both. Maturity as Christians means that we can read this chapter and we trust God when we read that Peter is freed, but we trust God when we read that James is killed. The church is earnestly praying and the answer he gives regarding James is the opposite of the one he gives regarding Peter. And as God's people, we praise him for it because in both situations, God is in control. We shouldn't just pray for God to deliver us, but we should pray also that God's will would be done and that we would have the strength to persevere if he decides to not bring an angel to free us from whatever adversity we're facing. We need to persevere in our faith and in prayer whether God shows up with an angel or not. There is no greater garbage in the world than preachers who tell people to name it and claim it, and that if you're enduring suffering or persecution and not experiencing prosperity, it's because you don't have enough faith. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. Tell me something. Did James lack faith? Do you think that James lacked faith? Do you think Stephen lacked faith? He was killed. Both were killed. Do you think the apostles lacked faith? They were all killed, except for one. God isn't a genie, and prayer is not magic. You don't say a couple words, and God grants you your wish. Let me tell you, if your only motivation for prayer is that God will do your will, our prayer life is not going to last very long because we're going to get frustrated that God doesn't answer prayer the way we want him to answer prayer. And then we're going to end up thinking that prayer doesn't work. We need to trust that God is hearing and answering even when we don't get the miracle. We need to persevere in our faith even when God permits trial and adversity. I love that when the angel shows up to free Peter, Peter is doing what? He's sleeping. That's right, Janina. Peter is in prison, about to be killed, and he's out like a baby. Let me try telling you that someone's going to chop your head off tomorrow morning. Let me see how you sleep. Peter is sleeping. His trust in God allows him to be at peace, despite facing death the next morning. Do you know where God was when James was killed? He was in the same place that he was when Jesus was put on the cross. He, it was in the same place he was when Peter was freed from the prison. And he's in the same place. He was in the same place that he is right now. When James dies, God is on the throne. When Peter's freed, God is on the throne. Chapter 12 is incredible because it reminds us that God is in control even in the most devastating of circumstances. It's encouraging because despite the evil that Satan uses to destroy us, God uses for our good and his glory. We just spoke about the gospel spreading 
from Jerusalem despite the persecution. And what happens? A whole bunch of people end up hearing and believing the good news of Jesus. God works in tough times. God is still sovereign in tough times. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Persecution is heating up in Jerusalem. And despite all that, the church perseveres. What are they found doing? They're found praying. Instead of planning Peter's escape, they pray. Earnestly praying, if you look at the word earnestly, it means to stretch and strain. They are straining and stretching in their prayer. This is difficult prayer they're having. They are pleading with God in these moments. Prayer isn't a throwaway activity to these people. They earnestly seek God. They clearly believe that God is trustworthy even in these circumstances. They believe they can depend on him. Trial doesn't cause them to abandon prayer. The death of James doesn't lead them away from God. It leads them to him. I don't know who this quote is from. I don't remember. When the church is found faithful, it is found praying. Our reaction to trial and adversity in our own lives should be prayer. Our reaction to news of cancer or unemployment or a child who doesn't want the gospel should be prayer. This is why the world thinks we're crazy. <laughs> Sounds crazy. When people have a problem, they want to solve it. Prayer to the world is not action. But for the Christian, this is our default reaction. Before anything else, we seek the Father's will. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't go to the doctor, that we don't take medicine, that we don't go look for a job, but it, it means that we seek to understand the will of the Father first. We seek His help and His comfort This small group of Christians that are praying has more power than all of the Roman army. They have 16 guards watching Peter. Four squads, four squads of four. And he's chained by both hands. It took one of God's agents to free Peter. And Peter doesn't even know what's happening. He thinks it's a dream. He, thinks it's a, he doesn't know if it's vision or real life. He admits that much. They pass a couple guards. They come to the gate. And the gate opens on its own. <clears throat> the word there is automatic, so it automatically opens. And with the gate to the city open, they're out on the streets. And now Peter's free and the angel leaves. Peter realizes he's free, but he's also still endangered. The guards are going to be looking for him real soon. So he goes to where he knows that the Christians are gathered. He goes to Mary's house. Mary is John Mark's mom. John Mark is the author of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. She's probably a wealthy woman because she's got a big enough house for the Christians to meet in, and she's got a gate in the city. So she's, she's loaded, they're meeting at her house. And they're praying. And Peter goes straight there. And what does he find? The word of God says there are many people praying. 
We don't know what they were praying for. Pablo doesn't tell us. And the next scene is pretty comical because Peter shows up at the door. And who comes to the door? A girl named Rhoda. And Rhoda's so excited when she sees Peter that she forgets to open the door. She goes back inside, and they're all deliberating on what exactly is going on. And Peter's at the door wondering if he's going to need another angel to bail him out soon. These folks are doing the right thing. They're praying when Peter shows up at the door. And they can't believe it. They are praying for God to work. God works. Peter shows up and they can't believe it. They think it's an angel. They tell Rhoda she's crazy. God shows up and amazes them. The word of God says that God will always figure out a way to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or imagine. Ephesians 3 verse 20, God promises to do far more abundantly than we can think or imagine. We pray, but remember this, that we don't pray as we ought. Romans 8 tells us this. If you open to Romans 8, 26, 27, it says that we don't pray as we ought. We ask God for things based on our limited knowledge. We come to God and ask him to solve problems the way that we want them solved. Based on our limited knowledge, based on our limited understanding, based on our limited set of experiences. And to compound the problem of ignorance, not only do we not know what to pray for, but we're also marred by sin. And so even our motivations and our desires are tainted when we come to God in prayer. Does that mean we should give up praying? <laughs> Absolutely not. What, here's what Paul says right after he says that we don't pray as we ought. He says that the Spirit of God is working on our behalf, interceding and groaning when we don't know what to pray for. We can pray with confidence because God knows we don't know what to pray for. We can pray with confidence even when we don't know how or what to pray for because God gives us the Spirit who helps us in our weakness Praise God. It says the Spirit knows the will of God and He intercedes on our behalf. Not only is the Spirit making up for our lack of knowledge and experience, it also says, it assures us, if you keep reading down in Romans 8, it says that, we're, it, it says that our prayers are also working for the good of those who love God. It is exceptionally comforting to know that despite not knowing what to pray, God still hears and responds to our prayers. Because the Holy Spirit is there interceding on my behalf according to the will of God. That's the promise that we have. So we pray and we pray fervently. And what's going to happen is what happened at Mary's house. God is going to amaze us. God doesn't depend on our catalog of ideas and solutions. So we would be wise, very wise, to look for responses to our prayers that aren't exactly what we asked for, given that God knows the best way to respond to our requests. If God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine, 
then we would be wise to look for answers to our prayer that are beyond our imagination. We should be on the lookout to see how God is trying to work and amaze us. We may pray for a miracle, but God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge knows a better way to respond to that request. We sometimes think that prayers are going unanswered when really God is just answering them in a different way that we weren't expecting. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us how he's working. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for the miracle. We do that every Sunday here. We pray for the sick. We pray for healing. We pray for God to amaze us. But it also means that we keep our ears open and our eyes open to see how God is answering that prayer in a way that we may not expect. The church is in shock and joy. Peter has to motion with his hands for them to be quiet. He's still in danger. And those little details, the hand motions and Peter telling them to be quiet, remember that Luke is investigating this. He is interviewing first-hand accounts to give us this story. So these little details, can you, it could have been Rhoda telling Luke this telling him this account. It could have been Mary. It could have been John Mark. We don't know who told Luke, but Luke is interviewing someone to get this story. And this person is telling Paul, man, uh, Peter had to go like this because we we're making so much noise and everyone was going to hear and report us. Peter's still in danger. He catches them up on the whole story and he says, guys, go and share this with the other believers. Go and share this with James and the rest of the church. And this James is a different James. The James that we hear about later in chapter 12 is Jesus' half-brother. And then Peter leaves because he's still being hunted. So he goes, he dips. Peter sees God's work firsthand, but he doesn't presume that God is going to work that way every time. So he flees to safety. He leaves. We don't know where he goes, but he leaves. He exercises wisdom and he leaves for a while. And like we read in verse 19, Herod goes searching for Peter. And when he doesn't find him, he's going to kill the guards. This is normal practice. We see this later in Acts when uh, Paul's boat is shipwrecked and there are a bunch of prisoners on board that the soldiers, they get ready to kill all the prisoners lest they should escape. And Paul has to run, hey, don't kill anybody. We're all here. Like, we're not going to run away. We're not going to escape. We read about it earlier as well. Or later, rather, when Paul and Silas are in jail. And they're freed. And the Roman soldier is about to kill himself before he can be killed for letting the prisoners go free until Paul says, well, hold up. Don't do it. We're all here. We're all here. Don't kill yourself. This is norm, normal practice. Herod orders their killing because in his mind, there's no conceivable explanation for why Peter is not in jail. The only conclusion he can come to is that the guards colluded with him to free him. And so he puts them to death. There's no other explanation. It does not compute for Herod that the God that he professes to believe may have been operating in this scenario. 
If Herod were a Jew by conviction, he may have thought, maybe God did something here. Maybe 16 soldiers didn't just collude with Peter to let him go free. We sometimes think that if God does a miracle, if God does something absolutely incredible in so-and-so's life, that they'll be saved and everyone around them will be saved. And that might happen, and certainly there are cases where that happens. But we need to remember that humanity will always find an alternative explanation to a miracle. Miracles don't soften people's hearts. The Holy Spirit softens the heart. If we pray for a miracle in someone's life, let me encourage us as well to pray that they would have the eyes to see that it was God's work at the miracle. Don't just pray for healing. Pray that God would help people to see that it was God's doing. To see that he is the one who made it happen. The miracle is only part of The process, the Holy Spirit still needs to work in that person's heart so that they see that it's God working and that that person needs to come to Christ and make him their savior. Don't just pray for the miracle. Pray that salvation would accompany the miracle. In verse 19, Herod kills the soldiers and then he heads back to a town called Caesarea. It says there in verse 19, then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there. Now, Caesarea is the administrative capital of this area. Caesarea is the most Roman city in all of this region. It is the least Jewish. This is where Herod can go and let loose. He doesn't need to pretend all the time the way he does when he's in Jerusalem. This is where Herod goes and he's allowed to enjoy some of Roman culture. This is where he doesn't have to worry about appealing to the Jews all the time. He can be a little less Jewish. Herod goes to Caesarea and this is where he throws lavish parties for his important guests. He throws parties and he hosts games to honor Caesar and to honor the emperor of Rome. He invites all the important people to come and to have a wonderful party and a wonderful time in Caesarea. And while he's in Rome, or while he's in Caesarea rather, celebrating the emperor of Rome, the people of Tyre and Sidon, an area, a Mediterranean, a city close to the Mediterranean, they come down, the people of Tyre and Sidon come down and try to restore their relationship with Herod because they're a port city and they don't have access to food. And so they depend on Herod's region for food. And it happens to be, we don't know why, but the Bible tells us that Herod is upset with them. And so they come down to Caesarea while these games are going on while there's this big celebration going on to honor Herod in hopes that they can heal their relationship in fact they go to his assistant Blastus and they try to convince him to convince Herod to make things right between them again because they need food and this dependency on Tyre and Sidon on on the area of Judea it goes all the way back to the Old Testament in first Kings we read the king of Tyre and Sidon 
exchanging with King Solomon. He brings cedar and cypress and King Solomon gives him wheat and oil. This dependency has lasted for quite some time. Herod now holds power over this region. They need food. They need him. Especially during this time of famine. Just before chapter 12, we read that prophets come and they prophesy a time of famine. So there's not a, a lot of food going around. They really need to make things right with Herod. So they come and they're going to honor this man. This is a massive ego boost for Herod. Herod is riding high. His territory has been expanding since his friends, you know, got their new job as emperors of Rome. Tyre and Sidon comes down and they're begging for his forgiveness. A lot of this context, by the way, comes from a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And his account follows very closely with the biblical account here. Neither Luke or Josephus tell us what the content of Herod's speech is now that he's going to give in, in verses 20 to 23. We don't know. But both focus on what he's wearing. The Bible says royal robes. Josephus says that Herod puts on silver robes. And when the sun comes down, that he's, that he's beaming. And when the people, he puts on quite a show, when the people see this, they're mesmerized. And they begin to shout, this is, this is not a man, this is the voice of a God. He's no mere mortal, this is a God. They exalt Herod and they praise him as a God. If Herod was a Jew by conviction, let me tell you, he would have rebuked them right away. He would have stopped the idolatry right away. But no, Herod stands there basking in the glory that's being thrown his way. He accepts every ounce of it. He stands there soaking in the praise. He stands there as divine provider because now they depend on him for food. This is normal for rulers of this day, but it is not normal for God's people to act this way. If the law of God were in Herod's heart, Herod would have rebuked everyone there. He would have reminded them that there's only one provider, one creator, one God that they should be worshiping. Herod accepts the honor and the glory that is due to his God. And the result for not giving God the glory is terrifying judgment. We see this pattern throughout scripture. Again, we finished in Daniel not too long ago. What did we see happens to kings who exalt themselves? They are quickly brought down. We see King Nebuchadnezzar go crazy. Uh, he exalts himself and God comes to him and says, you're going to go crazy because you did not honor me as God. His, he goes and I think he's eating grass. His hair grows long. His nails grow long. He goes crazy until he humbles himself to the creator of the universe he humbles himself to God and then he's restored Herod gets proud and arrogant and God sends an angel to uh, an angel of the Lord to strike him dead and the word strike is the same word that we hear about when Peter is sleeping in the prison Peter is struck to wake up and Herod is struck to die in God's sovereignty he sends an angel to wake up Peter to free him and he sends an angel to kill Herod God is sovereign and in control at every single moment in Acts. King or not, Herod dies and he's food for worms. When he's eaten by worms, it means that he dies 
lightly takes him a couple days. Josephus says five days. And just like you or I, he goes into the ground and he's food for worms. Compare that now to how Paul and Barnabas react a couple chapters down, chapter uh, 14, when the people of the town see the miracles that are happening, they shout, the gods have come down. They call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. Listen to the reaction of godly men when this type of glory is thrown their way. They tear their clothes. And in that very moment, when they hear it, in that very moment, they waste no time. They run into the crowd and they shout, why are you doing this? We are also men like you. Turn your life around toward the living God, creator of heaven and earth. That's the response Herod should have had in this moment. In Acts 3, something similar happens. Peter, uh, God has just used Peter to deliver a miracle and the people... They start praising Peter, and Peter responds and says, Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made this man walk. Peter points the glory back to God. He gives God the credit that he is due. God is committed to his own glory, and he will not deal kindly with it being taken away from him. Herod's arrogance and pride and idolatry matter to God. God takes his own glory seriously, and he can because he's worthy. The rules of humility that apply to you and I don't apply to God. It's wrong for us to seek our own glory because we're mere creatures, but God is totally self-sufficient, doesn't need anything or anyone, and so everything is owned by him, and so it's okay that he demands the glory that is due to him. Herod takes the credit for someone else's work, God's work. And we have that tendency, just like Herod did, just like Satan did before he got thrown down. We have the tendency to seek our own glory, to bask in it when it comes our way, to seek our identity in it. Let me tell you, prayer avoids Herod's fate. Prayer helps us avoid Herod's fate. Prayer reminds us that we are dependent on God. Give us this day our daily bread. If Herod had prayed how Jesus taught, he would have remembered that it's not him who provides the food for Tyre and Sidon, it's God who provides the food. Prayer is an antidote to pride and arrogance. The Bible says in James, and we've gone through the book of James together too, it says that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Prayer in itself is a way to give glory back to the Father. Going to him and acknowledging that we need him. If you want to stay humble and avoid Herod's fate, pray, seek the Father. In the final section of this chapter, we hear that the church continues to grow. Read if you got your Bibles. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
And then in verse 25, we read, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The progress of the gospel is not prevented because the death of an apostle or because of Herod's persecution. The church prays, God's cause moves forward, and his enemies are destroyed. Satan targets the church. He wants to stifle it, but it keeps growing and expanding to the ends of the earth. The word of God increases and multiplies, we read. And not only that, but the church is also growing in maturity. Because in, at the end of chapter 11, we read that there's a famine going on and that the church in Antioch takes up a collection. So they take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And what we read in verse 25 is Paul and Barnabas leaving Jerusalem after having given, given that gift. They take up an offering, they deliver it to Jerusalem, and in verse 25, they're heading back to Antioch. Satan wants stingy Christians, but the word of God keeps expanding. The church is generous, and they give, and they contribute, and they support each other. This chapter, chapter 12, reminds us that we pray because we know God is sovereign. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. We can be confident that God is building his church and pursuing the good of his people for his glory. The chapter opens with James dead and, and Peter in prison and Herod triumphing. And it closes with Herod dead, Peter freed, and the word of God expanding to the ends of the world. So we can pray confidently. We can pray confidently because we know that God will accomplish his will. That God answers prayer. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you because you're a good, good God. You respond to prayer. You answer prayer. Because you are good and you are kind and you are generous, Father. You don't do miracles because we earn them. You do miracles because you are a good and faithful and generous God. Father, we pray that we would seek you, that we would seek your will, Lord. We pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us all of the different ways that you are accomplishing your purposes, all the different ways that you are answering our prayers, God. Give us eyes that see them. Give us eyes that see your responses to prayer, God. We pray. Amen.